Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity is brought to you by Purdue University College of Pharmacy and is supported by an educational grant from Mallinckrodt Pharmaceuticals. Before starting this activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. And now, here's your host, Dr. Mary Catherine Cheely. This is CME on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Mary Catherine Cheely, and I'd like to welcome Dr. Andrew Keevney to the program. He's a consultant hepatologist in the Departments of Medicine and Transplantation at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. Today, we'll be taking a look at a patient case highlighting challenges and the best practices in decompensated cirrhosis leading to multi-organ failure. Dr. Keevney, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Mary Catherine. Throughout this program, we'll also hear from Dr. Don Rocky and Dr. Michael Curry, both of whom spoke at a symposium on this subject at the American College of Gastroenterology Conference. It was held in Vancouver, Canada in October 2023. Dr. Rocky is a professor of medicine in the College of Medicine at the Medical University of South Carolina, and Dr. Curry is a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and the section chief of hepatology. He is also the Director of Liver Transplantation at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. So let's get started, Dr. Keevney. Can you give us an overview of the progression of cirrhosis and how decompensation manifests? Thank you, Mary Catherine. As damage to the liver accumulates due to alcohol use, presence of fatty liver or viral hepatitis, one of the most significant pathologies is impaired blood flow through increased hepatic resistance. This results in poor hypertension where the hepatic disease pressure gradient increases. Initially, the liver can continue to function, but in the presence of this increased portal pressure, along with a development of a hyperdynamic circulation, esophageal varices can develop, which we'll hear about in our patients. As cirrhosis reaches a more advanced stage, you have this increased hepatic resistance. In addition, outside of the liver, the extrahepatic manifestation of uh, the portal hypertension is the development of poor systemic collaterals. And these will ultimately lead to the development, again, of esophageal varices. But in addition, ascites, hepatic encephalopathy, the padromenal syndrome can all develop as complications of poor hypertension. And we call that decompensated cirrhosis. And a very serious complication of decompensated cirrhosis is the development of a padromenal syndrome, which is a type of acute kidney injury where the renal vasculature undergoes intense vasoconstriction as a compensatory mechanism. Acute kidney injury is very important to decompensate cirrhosis as it confers the highest additional mortality risk in our patients with cirrhosis. There have been several guideline changes for maintaining kidney function, a very important development in the treatment of paternal syndrome. And as we go forward, we will discuss these in this podcast because they're very important in terms of treating patients and preparing them for liver transplantation and we'll hear about them more in our case today. With that background in mind, let's hear from Dr. Rocky about a patient case he recently encountered in clinical practice. So this is a patient that we saw a couple of years ago, a 39-year-old woman with known hepatitis C, presented with hematemesis, blood pressure 90 over 40, heart rate 120, jaundice, spider angioma, probable ascites, prothrombin time, 19 seconds. That is an INR of about 1.7. Bilirubin, 6 platelets, low, hematocrit, 29. NG lavage, fresh blood. So this is what we see in practice all the time. Given these initial details of Dr. Rocky's patient case, Dr. Keevney, how might you approach treating this patient? 
So I think the first challenge is to determine the source of bleeding. And that's one of the things that Dr. Rocky emphasized in his talk. So even though a patient has cirrhosis, other causes of bleeding can occur. So it's very important to do an endoscopy in a timely manner. And the current practice guidelines recommend performing an endoscopy within 12 hours of presentation with GI bleeding, because we simply cannot know what type of bleeding the person has until we perform the upper endoscopy. So we have to perform the endoscopy, establish the cause of bleeding, and then having a certain diagnosis, appropriate therapy can be applied. In the presence of bleeding esophageal varices, the first line therapy is endoscopic band ligation, as Dr. Rocky has mentioned. So it's, you know, it's eight o'clock at night, you're scoping this patient, they've got bleeding varices. The fact is that there are little new data. There have been extensive studies in this area, but there's not much new. And the data are that octreotide is equal to terlipressin, is equal to banding, and is equal to sclerotherapy. The reason that we use banding is that it's got the least number of side effects. And we generally, after you've stopped the bleeding, then we add pharmacologic therapy for secondary prophylaxis. And with that in mind, let's come back to Dr. Rocky one last time and hear some key take-home messages that he shared at the 2023 ACG conference regarding approaches to patients with acute variceal bleeding. So practical clinical approach here for acute bleeding. Everybody in the United States gets octreotide. In Europe, most people would get terlipressin. Everybody gets antibiotics. I think if you have a low meld or a child's pew score, you should be banded and then probably get secondary prophylaxis with a beta blocker. I think if you have a moderate to high meld score or you are listed for transplant, and we can talk about this with the experts here, the transplant guys, I think TIPS is probably the way to go. You want that patient to stop bleeding. You don't want them to get a lot of blood transfused. And the sooner you can cut off the bleeding, the better off you are. Dr. Keevney, do you have anything to add? I think, as Dr. Rocky mentioned, I would like to briefly talk about the role of preemptive TIPS. In the most recent ASLD practice guidance document, the guidance document really has emphasized that we should consider preemptive TIPS. That means TIPS performed within 72 hours of upper GI bleed due to port hypertension in specific categories of patients. Those are patients who have child pew score class B with active virus bleeding, or those of child puce cords class C with a score between 11 to 13 who've had bleeding from esophageal varices. Now, there are some important caveats in those situations. All the studies that looked at the role of preemptive TIPS excluded older patients, patients with cancer, patients with very high MEL scores, and patients with advanced chronic kidney disease. So I think TIPS has clearly a role, but it should be used in the appropriate setting. I would also like to mention that we have recognized, too, the importance of stopping proton pump inhibitors when possible because they are associated with increased risk of infections in our cirrhotic patients. So patients should not be routinely prescribed proton pump inhibitors on discharge. Now, if patients do not proceed to TIPS, really it's quite important to consider starting a non-selected beta blocker at the time of discontinuing vasoactive therapy in an effort to reduce the risk of further bleeding. For those just tuning in, this is CME on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Cheely, and today we're hearing from Drs. Andrew Keevney, Don Rocky, and Michael Curry about patient cases in decompensated cirrhosis. Now we're going to hear from Dr. Curry, who's sharing some additional developments on the case that Dr. Rocky first introduced to us. Let's tune in. 
I'm going to continue with Don's case. This is the young lady who had hepatitis C cirrhosis who had a variceal bleed. And as you can see, she's undergone endoscopic variceal band ligation. She also had moderate ascites and underwent a paracentesis with an absolute neutrophil count of 342 and therefore was continued on the antibiotics and the albumin as per standard of care for patients with spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. Unfortunately, despite this, our patient's creatinine has risen from 1.1 to 1.7 over 48 hours. So Dr. Keevney, could you explain a little bit about what is happening in this patient and how to identify what's happening? So as we all know, an elevated serocreatinine is indicative of kidney injury, and it's our primary marker for acute kidney injury, or AKI. So this patient's creatinine has increased 0.6 milligrams per deciliter in a 48-hour span which meets the guideline criteria for AKI, acute kidney injury. The key question here is what the etiology of the AKI is. We need to determine that as many different etiologies can be seen in patients with cirrhosis. There are different management strategies for patients who have post-renal obstruction compared to patients of kidney injury from acute tuberous necrosis or patients who have pre-renal impairment because of volume depletion. So different etiologies have very different management strategies. And it's going to be very important to distinguish between the etiology of kidney disease so appropriate therapy can be instituted. That's a great explanation. Let's see what Dr. Curry had to share about this at the 2023 ACG conference. So really, when we're trying to assess the causes of acute kidney injury in patients with cirrhosis, we have to take a very broad approach, go back to first principles and try and figure out what the correct answer is here. So we would use renal ultrasound to rule out obstruction and to make sure that the patient doesn't have any evidence of chronic kidney disease. And this patient did not have any obstructive uropathy, had normal-sized kidneys, had a small liver with moderate ascites. The urinalysis did not reveal any cells or casts. There was no evidence of any muddy brown cast to suggest ATN. There was no evidence of proteinuria or red cells to suggest a glomerulopathy or a chronic kidney disease. And then the urinary sodium, while not a part of the diagnostic criteria for hepatorenal syndrome anymore, at least is supportive of the fact that this patient is intravascularly dry and potentially not perfusing the kidneys. Dr. Curry also addressed the overall management algorithm for patients with AKI and cirrhosis. Now, the algorithm here is proposed to try and standardize the management of patients with cirrhosis and AKI. So patients who come in with an initial AKI stage 1A, these patients can be monitored. You remove the risk factors such as nephrotoxic agents, vasodilators, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, beta blockers, and consider volume expansion. Work these patients up for infection and treat it. If there is resolution, these patients can just be followed closely. If there's persistence of acute kidney injury, you have to go down a further investigation on a case-by-case basis. But if there is progression or if a patient presents with an initial AKI stage 1B, 2, or 3, again, apply the standard approach of withdrawal of diuretics, volume expand these patients for a period of one or two days. If there is response, these patients can be followed. And response is arbitrarily defined as a reduction in your serum creatinine by 20%. If there is no response, you have to then figure out whether the patient meets the criteria for HRS. And if they do, consider vasoconstrictor therapy and albumin. Dr. Keevney, could you briefly talk us through vasoconstrictor therapy for HRS? Thank you, Barry Cassie. So the first step in HRS management, as Dr. Curry mentioned, is to assess the volume status of these patients and expand their plasma volume using albumin if indicated. These patients have ascites and perfect edema, and very commonly they can have intravascular, impaired intravascular volume. 
So we need to increase their effective arterial blood volume. Once we've done that, we can determine further strategies. Many patients with pre-renal AKI will respond simply to volume expansion alone, and they will not need vasoconstrictive therapy. However, if after volume expansion and risk factor management, such as treating active infection, if you've done all those measures and serum creatinine has not improved, then the next step is to initiate vasoconstrictive therapy. So the goal with vasoconstrictive therapy is to reduce the systemic vasodilation uh, that we've discussed earlier that is driving the decreased effect of arterial blood volume and the renal impairment. And by using vasoconstrictive therapy, we can address that spike in the arterial vasodilation. So traditionally, midadrenal octreotide have been the only options within the United States outside of ICU to treat padrenal syndrome. However, really, there's very little efficacy to support their uses. A doctor presented when the studies have been performed, really no better than placebo. On the other hand, teriopressin, a spiking vasoconstrictor, has been approved recently by the Federal Drug Administration, has been shown to reverse paterenal syndrome. It can be used on the hospital floor, and it is recommended now as by most guidance to treat HRS AKI in an effort to improve renal function. In patients who are in the intensive care unit, norepinephrine through a central line is also another option. Terlopressin has a number of safety concerns associated with it. Let's hear Dr. Curry discuss risk mitigation. So the idea of mitigating treatment is not necessarily new to us in hepatology. We've done so for years. The Charles Pugh score was used to determine whether patients would have a good outcome or a poor outcome after surgical shunt surgery. And similarly, MEL score was introduced to try and predict the outcomes after TIPS. And as you can see here, we have a red light, green light strategy here. If we apply this to the treatment of HRS AKI, those individuals with a serum creatinine of less than 5, those individuals with grade 1 or 2 ACLF are suitable candidates for treatment with terlipressin. Individuals with a oxygen saturation of greater than 90 are also suitable candidates in those with a MEL score of less than 35. In all individuals, however, who develop HRSAKI, liver transplantation should also be considered in addition to trying to reverse renal failure. In the individuals with a serum creatinine of greater than 5, we should not consider treatment with terlipressin because these individuals are unlikely to respond. Those with ACLF grade 3 and those with an oxygen saturation of less than 90% should not be treated with terlipressin because we're more likely to cause harm, particularly the development of respiratory failure that might then preclude them from becoming transplant candidates. And MEL score greater than 35 should also be excluded from terlipressin because we're more likely to harm them rather than benefit them in terms of potential transplant candidacy. Dr. Keevney, in your clinical practice, is there anything that you would add? I think Dr. Curry's red light, green light is a great analogy. I think it's essential to consider that approach. Patient selection here is key. And I would just really like to emphasize the importance of early identification and early therapy, because we know that patients will do better if we identify patients who have HRSAKI early and initiate therapy at that time, rather than waiting until they become sicker with a higher serocreatine. And if we revisit our patient, now Dr. Keevney will tell us about the next step in management from the 2023 ACG conference. So we want to just go back to our case. So the patient remains on the floor and continues interleopressin, 0.85 milligrams every six hours. Blood pressure improves. Urinary output increases to 150 mils in 24 hours. Creatinine reduces to 1.4 milligrams in day four after initiating interleopressin based on prior to treatment is 1.1 milligram per deciliter. MEL score remains 28, and the patient is listed for liver transplantation. 
so the package insert says, if you have a continuous documented serum creatinine of less than 1.5, at 24 hours after two measurements of that, you can discontinue teriopressin. There will be no indication to increase the dose as the patient's renal function has improved. Uh, so it would be reasonable to discontinue the teratopressin observed. But maybe in discussion, potentially we discuss with Dr. Curry whether there's a role for continuing teratopressin in that situation, especially somebody listed for transplant. And I, I discussed it a little bit in terms of implications regarding improving kidney function for transplantation too. With all those additional details in mind, Dr. Keevney, how would you approach treating this patient now? So Mary Catherine, the key issues here are whether we say the patient has responded or is a partially responder to therapy and then whether treatment should be continued or stopped. The package insert for teratopressin and the recommendations state that we should stop teratopressin if the creatinine is unchanged or continues to increase by day four, or if the patient has achieved a complete response. That complete response is defined as reaching a serum creatinine within 0.3 milligrams per deciliter of baseline, or two consecutive measurements of serum creatinine less than 1.5. So for this patient, the baseline was 1.1 and it went up to 1.7. And with 30 pressed treatment, we reached 1.4. So we definitely saw a response to treatment and we can actually document a complete response if the serum creatinine remains less than 1.5 after the 24 hours. So we have options. We can stop the treatment, recognizing that in patients, there is a risk that the HRS ATI can relapse, but we know that we can retreat patients with 30 pressing again. Or in some circumstances, treatment could be continued to maintain a lowest possible serum creatinine. Because we know, especially in patients who are listed for transplant, there are data from the Italian group that those patients who responded to teriopressin and continued on teriopressin, those patients had improvement in renal function after transplantation. So there are options there, and I think it has to be taken on a case-by-case basis. Dr. Keevney, could you talk briefly about the options if the patient doesn't respond well to vasoconstrictors? So if the patient hasn't responded to albumin teriopressin and the serum creatinine continues to rise, then the next option in that situation is really to stop the teriopressin. And if the patient is being considered for transplantation, then transfer the patient to ICU for norepinephrine. Short-term renal replacement therapy, dialysis, is an option in patients who are listed for transplantation or being considered for transplantation, or potentially have a form of liver disease that is reversible and that we want to support their AKI whilst we hope that their liver function will reverse. So in those patients, we want to optimize treatment of their AKI with the hope to get in the transplantation or that the liver will recover. Ideally, we'd like to improve the renal function even in patients listed for transplantation because we know that if they continue to be required dialysis for longer than six weeks, they will have to consider them for simultaneous liver and kidney transplantation. Well, we have certainly covered a lot today, Dr. Keevney. So before we close, what are some key points from our discussion that our audience should take home with them? Well, as a transplant hepatologist, I really want to emphasize the importance that our jobs are to optimize care of patients because for a patient who is heading into transplantation, it's always much better that they have good real function. We know that those patients post-transplantation, they have shorter length of stay, less complications, and indeed potentially a lower chance of mortality in the six to nine months post-transplantation because real failure causes significant morbidity in the post-transplant setting. So addressing real failure pre-transplantation will give patients a better chance of doing well and a better kidney function post-transplantation. Standing back, we presented a case of a patient who had cirrhosis, developed decompensated disease, and then 
showed a very serious manifestation of DCOMS hysterosis, HRS, AKI. It's very important in patients who develop acute kidney injury in the presence of panic decompensation. You have to consider the differential diagnosis. Treat pre-renal conditions, look for obstructive disease, carefully use IV albumin to resuscitate individuals and to correct any intravascular volume depletion. Once you've done that and there's ongoing AKI, HRS really is the top of mind for the differential. And we are now fortunate to have teripressin as the FDA-approved treatment of choice for AKI HRS, which can be used in select individuals. When used appropriately, we can see a reversal of AKI HRS. In patients don't respond, then additional interventions such as norepinephrine should be considered while waiting for liver transplantation as the optimal therapy for patients who manifest decompensated strokes. This has been a wonderful discussion on management strategies for patients who have decompensated cirrhosis. And I want to thank Dr. Andrew Keevney for being here today. Dr. Keevney, it was such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much, Mary Catherine. This activity was brought to you by Purdue University College of Pharmacy and was supported by an educational grant from Mallinckrodt Pharmaceuticals. To receive your free CME credit, be sure to complete the post-test and evaluation at ReachMD.com CME. This is CME on ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.